Uh, hello everybody. I won't say good morning because the reality is I don't know when you're going to be watching this. So hello and uh, I guess welcome to church such as it is. A few months ago when we were planning out this preaching series, knowing that I was going to be in mid-August, I thought that by then at least we'd all be back in the hall and I wouldn't have to be doing this on video. But So not only are we still not able to meet together, we've gone back a step to stage three. Well, at least we're not in Melbourne. I don't know about the rest of you, but in our house, we've mostly stopped watching the news. The media is constantly going on about new numbers and new infections and, uh, and deaths. Now, don't get me wrong. Each and every death is a tragedy. But what about the increased numbers of suicides and the destroyed lives and livelihoods? Businesses that will never open again. People who may struggle for years to find gainful employment. Bankruptcies, families falling apart. I've heard of people being too scared to go to hospitals and they're having heart attacks or strokes. And one report, just talking about breast cancer, noted that the number of women getting tested for breast cancer has dropped. So how many cancers and other diseases are being undiagnosed at this time? I'll, I'll try not to get too political here, but, but whether you think the Premier has done a brilliant job and deserves a statue in his honour after all this is over, or whether you think that Comrade Dan is a dangerous man without a plan except the ban, um, the reality is there's a lot of fear and uncertainty in our community. And the media are ramping up the fear. And the politicians who don't want to be seen as letting this virus escape into the community are shutting down the state and the city but causing so much more heartache. So fear and uncertainty reign. And deaths and short-term hardships will turn into long-term suffering for many, many people. Just to put this in a bit of perspective, <clears throat> I was reading an article about an ancient underground city in Turkey. Now this city uh, was 200 feet underground. It was on five levels and could house up to 20,000 people. They dug, out, they dug down, they dug this out because in the middle of the 7th century, the Islamic Caliphate was expanding its empire. So the choices were simple. They could flee, be slaughtered or enslaved or dig. So just think about that. The idea of these invaders was so terrifying that these people dug an underground city into rock as a hideout. And a thousand years prior to this, as Steve has pointed out, the Assyrians were marching across, um, well, I guess, I guess the, the, the known world that we're talking about in this context. And um, for, for many people, being captured by, these, by the Assyrians would have meant a drawn-out and horrible death, far more brutal than anything that we could imagine. We live in a world, whatever the age, where uncertainty and along with fear and suffering seem all too often to reign. But what about us? We actually have a hope, don't we? And uh, hopefully that's what we'll talk a bit about today. Uh, so let's pray before we start, shall we? <clears throat> So Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you uh, that we can, uh, as it is, gather here to hear your words preached. And Lord, we just pray that uh, we can, as, as we work through this passage, as we work through your word, um, that, that we can see the hope that is there for us. And Lord, I just pray that the words I speak will be helpful and true. And anything I say that is untrue, Lord, may it be chaff blown away by the wind. Amen. Um, and so before we start, I will just say that uh, my, we're doing 11 and 12, as, as, you should, as you probably know. And uh, my assumption is that you will have read this, so I won't be reading the, the text in its entirety. 
But where I want to start off today, just, just to, as a bit of background, um, just so we can get started uh, and put ourselves into context, is we'll, we'll go back to Isaiah chapter 6. So Isaiah 6, and uh, start, we'll start at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is a stump. Excuse me. <clears throat> Prophecy has different images. Last week, Steve mentioned chapter 8. And in chapter 8, we hear, we, if you remember, uh, we talked about floodwaters sweeping people away and covering them up to their necks. And so, as we just read in, in Isaiah 6, Jerusalem is also likened to a felled tree. The people of God are a tree cut down, but there's still hope. There's still a stump or, and a holy seed left. And again last week, Steve left us in chapter 9 with hope. The glorious hope of a child who would end darkness, do away with oppression and suffering, and would bring in a limitless and unending kingdom of David. Then the mood shifts. So from chapter 9, verse 8 and following, um, and particularly in, in verses 8 to 12 here, the Lord sends word to Israel. And verse in verse 12, he stretches out his hand against them. But in verse 13, the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cuts them off. And then from chapter 10, verse 5, the action switches back to Assyria. So although Assyria is the rod of God's anger, they pay no regard to the Lord and, sees, and see themselves as doing all these things by their own power and might. In, 10, in chapter 10, verse 12 and following, the arrogant king of Assyria boasts that it is by my hand and my wisdom that I have conquered the peoples. But then in verse 15, Assyria is judged. So verse 15. <clears throat> Shall the axe boast over him who hews it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if the rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Um, and yeah, then I'll read 17 to 19. So chapter 10, 17 to 19. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forests and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. So in chapter 10, we see Assyria sweeping into Jerusalem. I didn't read the whole thing, of course. But we have Assyria sweeping in Jerusalem, unstoppable and full of their own self-assurance. But the power of Assyria is more than matched by the axeman and the fire of the Lord, 
with the imagery being that of a mighty forest felled and cleared and reduced to a remnant. But then in, in chapter 1020, um, it shifts from the Assyrian remnant to the remnant of Israel, who can now stop leaning on Assyria and lean on the Lord. These verses change between Israel and Zion and the house of Jacob. And so the idea is the whole land in view, all the 12 tribes. And the last verses in chapter 10, the Lord tells his people not to be afraid of the Assyrians, because although they will indeed sweep in, their time is numbered. <clears throat> and we'll read um, yeah, just the last two verses. So chapter 10, 33 and 34. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. And uh, the great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Again, the image is of the Lord God, the mighty axe, when coming in and levelling the forest that is Assyria. So we started back in chapter 6 with God's people being reduced to a stump. And then Assyria is now a flattened forest. But unlike Assyria, the stump... Unlike Assyria, the forest, sorry, the stump isn't dead. It shall bring forth a shoot. And so here we are in today's passage. So 11 verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The stump of Jesse, or if you look over verse 10, it refers to the root of Jesse. So why Jesse? This is a pretty unusual phrase. Jesse is virtually a nobody, and the only thing famous or interesting about him is his younger son, David. It's on the house of David we repeatedly see the promise, uh, the promises rest, with all the kings being referred back to their father, David. So as, as one example, in uh, 2 Kings 18.3, we read, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. What we see in the Old Testament is that the various kings are compared to their father, their ancestor David. So the shoot from the stump of Jesse is not another king in the line of David, but is another David. And David, of course, was the greatest king in Israel. So David alone was a son of Jesse, but here we are promised yet another David. But even more, in verse 10, he not only comes from Jesse, but is the root of Jesse. So Jesse the stump comes from this root. It is this person who gives life to Jesse's tree. In, in Mark 12, Jesus, referring back to Psalm 110, quotes David saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. With Jesus then asking, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Jesus is referring back to the same idea as this king being the root of Jesse. So after this introduction to the king, we learn more about him. So we'll read uh, 11 verses 2 to 5. <clears throat> and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. 
So <clears throat> in Old Testament times, the spirit of the Lord resting on people was reserved for a few. Think of Moses and Joshua and David. Um, the Lord endows specific people with his spirit for special tasks. And so it is with this king. Now in the rest of verse 2, we can see it breaks. Uh, we've got six attributes broken down into three pairs. So we have the spirit of wisdom and understanding. This is a kingly and judicial attribute. Back in 1 Kings 3, the Lord grants Solomon his wish and gives him a wise and discerning mind. This is not just being wise, but also being able to get to the very heart of an issue. And, uh, and back in Isaiah 10.13, uh, as we read before, the Assyrian king arrogantly says that he has defeated Jerusalem by my wisdom and my strength. This coming king that we've talked about, this stump uh, of David, uh, he is the antithesis of this, of the Assyrian king. It is the spirit of God that gives true wisdom and true understanding. Uh, is also the spirit of counsel and might. In other passages, uh, these Hebrew words uh, tend to reflect strategy and military strength. So this is not only being able to see the course of action that's needed, but it's about being able to see it through, to follow us through to its um, conclusion. And lastly, he's given the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Uh, Proverbs 1, if you remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or the beginning of wisdom. True knowledge is living life in reverence and submission to the Lord. And this king, being endowed by the spirit, he doesn't rule by what can be seen, but with, a right, but with righteousness and justice. And he defends the poor and needy and slays the wicked. Remember the backdrop of Isaiah is the corruption of justice and the oppression of the poor. Even though the kings of the house of David were meant to protect the poor and the meek and to rule with justice and mercy, they most often did the opposite. And so this coming king rules as a true and righteous king. And notice this, this king only needs his mouth and his lips. His word is his powerful weapon. This king needs no other weapons at all. And in verse 5, the belt. This is symbolic of being ready for action. The belt keeps his clothing out of the way so he's ready to go into battle. Um, just, to, just to perhaps be a little bit controversial, uh, George Pell. So whatever you think of his case, when it got to the High Court, they effectively just threw it out. It was a 7-0 ruling. Um, the High Court said the evidence as presented before the court in this case had so many problems and inconsistencies that the High Court ruled that on the evidence presented, he simply could not have committed those offences, uh, that his conviction was wrong. But uh, the problem is when you've got all government organisations like the ABC and much of the rest of the media pretty much having convicted him, um, and during the process, the police were actually advertising for victims, um, which is really unheard of and quite disturbing if you think about it. And then after um, Pell was cleared, we even had our Premier suggesting that he was still guilty. Um, so you really have to wonder about this system we have. People were saying the only way Pell could have ever got a fair trial was when the case finally left Victoria. And whether you think he's guilty or innocent or have no opinion, that is a really scary thought. Um, that is about, more about injustice. Um, there was very little to do with justice in that case. Um, 
Yes, the governments are meant to be about justice, and too often we just don't see this. Justice is meant to be about looking, up, about looking after everyone. Now, now, Pell was quite well known, and although not rich, he had uh, a lot of powerful rich people backing him and helping him. So how many little people don't have those sorts of resources and those sorts of people helping them? Um, so yeah, justice is meant to be about looking after particularly the poor and the powerless and defending them and making sure they're looked after. And so this coming king, he's a king of righteousness and justice. Um, okay, I, I, just to change the topic, um, some time ago I was watching a documentary. This wasn't a Disney movie with a whole lot of bits of unrelated footage all spliced together to make up some story. This is a one-shot take that went on for a few minutes. <clears throat> um, so it's in Africa. The camera um, shows like a, a, dry, a river, um, a billabong we perhaps call it, but a river. Um, and into the shot, a gazelle comes running down, hotly pursued by a, a pack of African wild dogs. And the gazelle just plunges into the water and he's off, swimming across. And the dogs, uh, not being in a panic, quite sensibly stop at the water's edge. Um, the camera then zooms in on the gazelle, swimming madly across, trying to get to the other side. And a hippo service is just near it. And hippo, um, not liking this intruder into its territory, uh, charges over, big splash, and they both disappear. But a few seconds later, the gazelle pops back up to the surface and keeps madly swimming to the other side. And he makes it. But in the meantime, the wild dogs have somehow found their way around to the other side and cut off his escape. And so the gazelle, having no, no other course of action, jumps back into the water, but this time avoids the hippo swimming in, in, a, in a diagonally opposite direction. This time a crocodile services, swims over, chomp, gone. Uh, end of gazelle. Um, again, this is just a one-shot take. It took only a few minutes, so it wasn't, like I said, a Disney movie spliced together. But what struck me was that um, those close calls, it all seems so cruel and awful and pointless. Now, in, in a very real sense, this is just nature being nature. I mean, after all, crocodiles and dogs, they've got to eat. But on the other hand, um, just to see something like that, stretched out like that, with, with all these, you know, is he going to escape, won't he, nearly makes it, but doesn't, you can't help but feel it's somehow called quite tragic and cruel. Because after all, what hope does a gazelle have against hippos and dogs and, and crocodiles? The whole creation is groaning. <clears throat> but from here, we'll look at our next few verses. So, so back in chapter 11, verses 6 to 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole like a cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Now, where I finished was, we had the whole of creation groaning. What we see in these verses is a reversal of this order, a restoration of how it was in the Garden of Eden. The wolf and the lamb, the leopard and the young goat, the lion and the calf, 
Notice these are all top predators um, with their most helpless of prey, the young. The strong and the weak are living together in peace and without fear. And a little child should lead them, not just live, with, live with them without fear, but leading them, exercising dominion. Again, a sense of this restoration to Eden. In Genesis 1 to 30, um, we read, The Lord says to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. So when you get to Isaiah 7, you can see this isn't just about repeating verse 6. But again, this is pointing out to a, 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 like a restoration of how it was in Eden. Here we have the predators grazing, grazing the grass and grazing the, the straw with animals that would have formerly been their prey. And in verse 8, the image of a helpless nursing child playing over a cobra's hole or an unawares weaned child playing over an adder or a viper's den. Um, on the surface, that's pretty scary. But in this context, the child is doing so in safety and with no reason to fear. And could this again be a reference to back to what happened with our parents and the serpent in Eden. As one commentator said, instead of the serpent attacking the child, the child will play along the, alongside the snake without fear of being attacked. And then verse 9 is a bit of a summary of the last few verses. In all my holy mountain, this is not just Zion, but, but sees the whole earth as God's mountain. And just as the endless expanse and depth of the ocean is filled by water to a capacity, so will the knowledge of the Lord fill the earth. These verses tell us that, that, that nature will be restored and will be reconciled. The effects of sin and the fall will be reversed. Verse 10 concludes this section, but also um, introduce, introduces us to the next. It concludes by referring back to the root of Jesse, who here is a signal, a banner held up for the people to draw them to himself. It's a reference back to Egypt and the Exodus, because here in verse 11, he, said it's, he says it's the second time he will recover his remnant, and this time from everywhere. Other parts of Isaiah refer to the first coming of the Messiah, such as, as last week in, in 9.6, for unto us a child is born. But sections such as this one refer to the second coming, to the king's final consummation. And so this is also an eschatological promise, a future promise. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, begins verse 10. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand, starts verse 11. 12 verse 1, you will say, in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. And 12 4, you will say, in that day, give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. All these point forward to the messianic age. And this promise, verse 11, it goes out to the remnant that remain from Assyria, from Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. All these are mentioned to symbolise the completeness of this call, from the four corners of the earth, so to speak. And in verse 12, the signal, the banner, is, is, is raised to the nations, to the banished of Israel, the exiles, the scattered ones. The call is out to gather them back together. Um, have you ever been lost? And I mean lost. Um, I, I did get myself lost once, and I probably will again, but don't tell Robin that. Um, I was I was I parked my car um, in the bush once, and had wandered away. Um, 
Um, and then when I wandered back, I somehow got myself turned around. And so uh, the car nor the track where I parked it were where they were meant to be. Um, uh, I parked the car next to a little patch of marsh. And uh, as I've come back out of the bush, um, I've seen the marsh and I've headed towards it, but it was a completely different spot. Um, so I was completely turned around, couldn't backtrack, didn't know which way I'd come in, didn't know, wasn't, it just it simply didn't know, didn't know what to do. So when you suddenly realise you've lost, there is that moment of panic of not knowing where to go and what to do. Um, in trying to get myself out, I was just getting myself deeper. So I stopped and thought. And I figured that at the end of the day, if I can go on a straight line, I'm going to pop out somewhere. Um, it was a thick forest, uh, so what I'd do, I'd, 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 I'd sight up ahead onto the farthest tree and walk towards it. Once I got to that, I'd sight up ahead onto the next farthest tree and walk towards that. After about an hour or so, I saw this wonderful sight. Through the trees, bare grass. I found a paddock. And look, let me tell you, there was a, I had a flood of relief. So I headed towards the paddock and then I popped out onto the road I came in on. But that, but that paddock, that paddock was a signal, it was a banner. After an hour of uncertainty and fear and being lost, um, that was a signal to me that yes, there is safety up ahead. Um, I'm out of danger. Now that's a rather trivially, trivial example. I was only lost for an hour. But in this passage, these people are truly lost. They're lost spiritually. They're, they're, they've got no way back, no way out. And there's nothing they can do to save themselves. And then here comes this king. He raises his banner and draws his chosen people back to himself. You know, what a wonderful image that is. And then if you read verse 13, the action swings back to the whole nation of Israel. Ephraim here represents the northern kingdom and Judah the southern kingdom. So here the old animosities will be cast off. The divided kingdom will be reunited and restored to how it was meant to have been. And then being restored, in verse 13, they will swoop down onto the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, and will complete what they were meant to have done an age ago. They will conquer the land and do away with their enemies. It's language that can grate on us modern people, but the reality is that even the New Testament talks about God's enemies and people who are against God, false teachers and ravenous wolves. Ignoring God and disobeying God brings disaster upon oneself. Um, and then in verse 15 and 16, um, in the Exodus, they had to cross the Sea of Egypt, the Red Sea. And so this, and this reference to a river, uh, some translations have as the Euphrates River. Um, this again appears to reference the Exodus, but this time with the Exodus being a worldwide movement. And the people are led across on, in their sandals on a highway. He is making their paths straight and their way easy. And notice in verse 16 it says, There will be a highway for the remnant as there was for the people of Israel. This is further confirmation that people is talking about more than just the people of Israel. So language through chapter 11, we have this coming king and he's going to restore, um, bring us to this new Eden, this new exodus and even a new conquest of the land. So why are these important? Eden started out well, but from there we had the fall. The Exodus, that, that magnificent betrayal of God's grace and calling his people out of bondage and slavery, ended with those same people disobeying God and being left to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then when the people were finally allowed in the, into the land to conquer it, they again disobeyed God 
and fall well short of their calling and what they were meant to do. We continually see God calling his people, but his people falling woefully short. And so chapter 11 introduces us to this king who will restore everything to how it was meant to have been. Um, and then from there, we end, get to the chapter 12, this next section, where we have this wonderful hymn or hymns to God. And um, we probably, no, I won't read it just now. But uh, notice if you read verses 12, particularly verses 1 and 2, um, notice the pronouns used. It's I and me. This is not the people as such, but it's me. This is a personal hymn. You know, sure, there's a collective of individuals reading this, um, but the actual application here is that of me. So the responsibility to trust God lies with the individual, lies with me, and his saving grace goes out to the individual. And also here, we have that wonderful concept of propitiation. For though you were angry with me and turned your anger away, God turns away his righteous anger. Why? That you might comfort me. This is God's willingness to have us. Um, so his wrath becomes his comfort. And then in verse 2, why am I not afraid? Because it is the Lord God who is my strength and shield. And notice that this verse opens and closes with the fact that it is God who is my salvation. What a wonderful promise. What a glorious realisation this is. <clears throat> and then in, in, in the next verses, the rest of this chapter, um, it actually refers back to the, the plural. So this part is very much the communal hymn. Um, and I will read these verses. <clears throat> so with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praise to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. What a, way, what a just you know, fantastic way to finish. Um, this is the people singing praises to God, um, drawing water from the wells of his salvation, limitless water uh, for everyone. And, and he calls people from across the earth. Now remember what's been going on so far in, in Isaiah. Because, the people, because of the people's disobedience and unfaithfulness, God's wrath and in fact his rod in the form of Assyria is coming. Now, this will be a terrible event. But what they are promised is that the faithful will be preserved and that a king, a righteous king, is coming, one who will restore creation to how it was meant to have been. And God's wrath will be turned away so that we can, get, we can then sing about his glory. And this is his ongoing promise to us. So even though we live in much uncertainty, particularly in times such as we are in now, we really have no need to fear because we know the outcome. And although we are faced with struggle now, in that day we will de declare the glory of the Lord. For many people, their doubt and uncertainty comes from expecting and hoping to see these things now in their timing. But this is not about what we want. This is about the Lord God in, and his timing. This is about us having the faith and trust Having, having faith and trust in him and patiently waiting for that future day when in that day all wrongs will be righted and we will be restored to our place with God. 
and thinking about that, how can I not but flick over to Revelation, uh, the last couple of chapters of Revelation. So I just want to finish reading out a few verses. Um, and so, yeah, we're starting in chapter 21. So that's the second last chapter in your Bible. And we'll just read verses 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride and adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then just flick over the page to uh, chapter 22. And I won't read every verse, but uh, starting at 12 and through to the end. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of Jesse. And we've read about those. Um, and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires the water of life without price. In verse 20, um, he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed a, a wonderful God and that you do keep your promises. Um, and as we uh, look at the world around us and wonder how things are panning out and how things are going to end, um, and wonder even what your plan is through all this, Lord, help us remember that uh, whatever else is, 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 is going on, um, our future is assured. And uh, in that day, uh, we can know... Um, where we will be. So Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for your love for us and we thank you for this promised King and um, uh, that he will avert the wrath to come. In Jesus' name, Amen.